You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Today is Tax Freedom Day, when South Africans stop working for the state and start working for themselves. This year it falls two days later than last year, in which it occurred one day later than in 2019. And it's alarming because it means the economy contracted, we know that, but it also means that the state is consuming an ever greater share of economic growth. And it comes in a week where Moody's issued a stern warning about slow reforms leading to further downgrades. And also, while Trade, Industry and Competition Minister Ibrahim Patel attempts to micromanage the economy through import substitution or localization quotas and mandatory pay disclosure, revealing the true extent to which the government uh, is out of touch with what it takes to build a business, to grow one out of nothing, to create value for the risk capital providers and create jobs and growth for the economy in return. At least the Reserve Bank governor seems to understand what is needed. In the press conference uh, after keeping the repo rate unchanged at a record low 3.5% yesterday, he reiterated that the stance is accommodative because the MPC believes that inflation is contained and that there is slack in this economy and this economy could do with some support. Well, to review the week that was, I'm joined now by Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, and uh, our special guest this week, Nazmira Muller, Head of SA Investments. So welcome, Naz, at uh, 91. Now, Warwick, let's just start with the big story in markets this week. And you waded into the crazy crypto waters a few weeks back, writing, for the FM with caveat mTOR and I think you couldn't have been more prescient but in reality that really wasn't a difficult call to make because we know they're volatile. Uh, what's behind the latest crash? Is it the China regulation story? Is it the Elon Musk story or the too much leverage story? Well I think there's a, a, a multitude of factors there. I think the trouble with, with commenting on, on, on crypto is that they are in, incredibly noisy and like any financial advisor who's been asked over the um, uh, the last few years as to whether one uh, should uh, uh, buy or whether the price is going to go up or whatever, lots of opportunity to get it wrong. Uh, I think uh, one of the key factors certainly has been sentimental. We've seen Elon uh, Musk, uh, first of all, opining in the positive, i.e. that Tesla would accept a uh, Bitcoin for payment, uh, and then uh, reversing trend quite quickly thereafter when it was pointed out that the uh, mining of these things is rather energy intensive uh, and uh, could uh, could jeopardize uh, Tesla's position as an environmentally friendly investment. Uh, and then, of course, we saw his rotation on views, firstly uh, positive and then negative on a, a, on a strange uh, crypto called Dogecoin, which was originally started as a joke. But of course, now with a, with a market cap of billions of dollars, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, certainly uh, a bit more than a bit of a joke, isn't it? Well, the market cap is, is bigger than Credit Suisse of Dogecoin or was at one point during the mania. And, and this is a joke meme cryptocurrency. It's very hard to take any of it seriously. But we do see, Nazmira, now that the, uh, the US administration targeting crypto transfers uh, in some form of crack, uh, a tax crackdown plan uh, and surely greater regulatory oversight will actually lead to um, greater adoption of cryptocurrencies, greater confidence in the long run, despite the, you know, the, the big appeal of cryptos being decentralized and being away from the regulators. It's really what cryptos need. Michael, I think it's a timing issue. So I think in the short term, a lot of what's um, supported crypto has been speculation. But I think there's also been an element of trying to avoid the regulatory net. 
I, I don't think we should underestimate how big um, the latter has been as an incentive to um, use crypto to avoid the debt. So I think in the long term, you're right. But I think in the short term, it could lead to a mm. um, prolonged period of, of weakness. By prolonged, I, I don't mean years, I mean months. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if you are, and I mean, if you buy the narrative of it being a, a hedge against fiat, and we see all of this money printing and things potentially going wrong there as a, a potential currency of the future, if you buy all of those narratives, uh, then you are buying the dip uh, at this stage as well. Uh, Raymond, I just want to move on now to uh, the, the other important news uh, this week, and that's the Saab MPC statement. Uh, None of the economists surveyed by Bloomberg ahead of the announcement expected anything but a rate hold. It was a unanimous decision, but the tone felt a lot more hawkish this time round. What stood out for you? Hi, Michael. Look, my point of departure has been over the past year that just as it cannot be business as usual, it can't be monetary policy as usual. So obviously monetary policy has also had to respond. I must say, I did not see the statement yesterday and indeed also in the interview afterwards as being hawkish. In fact, if anything, I thought it was quite a benign analysis of where we are now, both in respect of the outlook for average inflation and indeed for our our growth outlook. And I think it hasn't been perhaps sufficiently noted that the Reserve Bank has now raised its forecast for our GDP growth this year from 3.8 in March to 4.2. I think that's a very healthy rebound in the economy. It is coupled with some some health warnings, of course, uh, as you would expect a central banker to make, but in particular, the warning that to get back to the pre-pandemic output levels is going to take two or three years. This is an overhang over several of our policy decisions, including monetary policy. So I think it's a welcome Uh, It's a welcome recognition that the central bank intends to keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible uh, and has indicated that very strongly it is stability uh, and the credibility of low interest rates that it wants to maintain at least for the rest of this year. Now, are there downside risks? Yes, well, we still have to know more about our our whole vaccination outreach. Uh, and also whether we are going to have a third wave. I was interested, though, uh, and you will know from our previous discussions, that I've entered strong, strong caveats about being too dependent on the quarterly projection model that would get us into trouble. Well, fortunately, I see we are now sort of distancing ourselves a little bit from it, mm. and I liked very much the comment from the central banker, uh, from, from our Saab governor, to say, that the bank doesn't outsource uh, its decisions to a model. Well, I, I think that's very important. And so I think what's, what's significant now is that that model is a servant and not the master uh, of whatever decisions we take on the monetary front, given the unusual circumstances, which a model, it's that radical uncertainty that mm. we all talk about that mm. can't be captured by that sort of model. Mm. So I think the bottom line is I, I came away what I took away from, from the statement was quite positive, and I think that the message on interest rates and on borrowing costs will be that we have a stable outlook. And I end up by saying on this point, it'd be interesting if we do get the standard and poor review tonight, contrast the what I call the internal view from the MPC and the external view from, yeah. from SFBS, where, where we go from now.
Uh, and you know, Warwick, let, let's contrast that. Uh, and I say potentially hawkish because the last few meetings we've seen a split between those who want to hold and those potentially who want to cut. Now we're seeing unanimity in holding. So it does look like the trend is uh, quite clearly towards potential increases. The QPM reckons 25 bips in Q2, 25 bips in Q4. The governor is, uh, is holding back on that. So I think that's where Raymond is, is reading this as perhaps more dovish. But if you look at the inflation numbers that we've uh, seen this week, they came in slightly higher than expected, yes off a very low base, but there's inflationary pressure building up in the system, be it in, in the fuel price and administered costs. Uh, and chatting to the retailers this week, they are saying it's very tough now to hold back uh, some of the cost increases that they are seeing in their inputs. Uh, how do you read it? Michael, I'd be very careful in the way in which I interpret that data for, for several reasons. The first is, as you will recall, we're now in the anniversary period of lockdown and there were multiple line items in that CPI basket that were basically cut out for the very simple fact that they were locked down and effectively inactive. Now, what will have happened since is, as you've uh, had businesses reopening, I mean, there, there's going to initial, initially be a period in which there's some kind of um, margin restoration will be sought, um, attempts to, to sort of catch up and lag at business, which will mess with data as well. Uh, and uh, then you're also going to find that there are supply side effects uh, in that supply chains were damaged during the whole process um, and has tended to, to exert a little bit of upward pressure, which will actually clear itself out of the system over time. I mean, a good example of that is how shipping has been messed with as a result of, of COVID. Uh, not only in that it de delayed shippings, it's also tended to, to, to um, reallocate how ships land in the country. So, for example, the ships that come to South Africa try and make sure that they land at Cape Town, for example, instead of Durban and PE, because of uh, the 14-day um, uh, period in which you, you, you effectively quarantine. And, and it's these kinds of effects that are going to create all sorts of funny noises coming through in our economic data. So one needs to be very careful of mm. hanging your hat on it. And I think that mm. what uh, Raymond pointed out vis-a-vis uh, -vis the governor there is very important. Nazmira, how did, uh, how did you read? Uh, I just want to come to Nazmira's reading of it before we bounce back to you, Raymond. Uh, what, what stood out for you? Now, as there was that bump up in growth, both locally and abroad as well, which I think is welcome, uh, but, but still very soggy economy underlying that. The key points have been largely covered, Michael. I think what, what I'd add is um, there was more emphasis on the upside risks to inflation this time around than there was last time. But despite that, the governor and later one of the deputy governors were pains to say that their preference was to keep interest rates stable mm. at a low rate for an extended period. So I don't think they're rushing it, but if they do see um, developments change, and particularly if they see the supply disruptions that are having um, some impact on prices, the global supply disruptions we see in the steel industry and auto industry, semiconductors, etc., they're willing to look through the initial increase, but if that persists or that begins to translate more generally, then they are willing to act. Mm. So I think it's more hawkish than two months ago, but mm. it's still not setting us up for an imminent hike. Right. Uh, Raymond, someone in the downstream steel industry got hold of me this week to say the prices are decreasing globally, but those are not being fed through uh, into South Africa. Very specific issues around the kind of support that uh, Minister Ibrahim Patel would like to continue to provide for AMSA. And we'll come to M Minister Patel's view of the economy. But what, do you, what would you like to add to that? I just want to add that I agree that 
we're in a different situation where when you unpack the dynamics, you have to be careful. You can't just take the textbook 101 and say, that's what we're going to do on the monetary fund. I think we must look carefully at the wording. You see, I think, uh, I think the governor of the Reserve Bank chooses his words very carefully. So if he says this inflation could be transitory, he's borrowing from the United States. He used those words. You've got to look, read between the lines. He also said, which he has said before, they will look through the first round effects. I don't think you can ask for more than that, but it does suggest they will not do anything really mm. precipitate. Mm. And yes, they will be data driven. We are all data driven. What matters is how you interpret it and what judgment you bring to bear. And what's important now is that they distance themselves to some extent from that model. It's only one of the inputs, as I said earlier, and as they've now emphasized more than ever before, and the fact that they've ignored what the model was mm. saying they ought to do shows good judgment. And I don't think we can ask yeah. for more than that. Now, localization is the current mantra of the Ramaphosa administration expressed through trade industry and competition minister Ibrahim Patel's request to business at Nedlac to pursue a target of 20% local content of all imported non-petroleum products. Now, it's alluring to sit in an office in Pretoria and think that uh, you can decree this into being. But how does one introduce 20% local content into highly specialized areas of manufacturing in value chains where we currently have no presence? There's a lot of chicken and egg in all of this. And uh, the question is really what is realistic? Now, we saw Business Unity South Africa and Business Leadership South Africa launching a report on this topic this week. And uh, it was produced independently by uh, local research consulting firm Intellidex. And it really looks at what's realistic to achieve and how this might occur, as well as what might happen if policy is rolled out inappropriately. Raymond, firstly, why 20%? I mean, if one just looks at that number, it sounds like a bit of a thumbsuck. Well, Michael, I think the minister did indicate, and he spoke to Nedlac on that, that was his target. And he said he wanted it as soon as possible. That, to some extent, has prompted this, this excellent study. Uh, which we had this week, which tries to put the whole the whole localization effort in a proper in a proper perspective. He has subsequently said in Parliament, well, it could take a few years. Well, I think the important point that comes through from the study is that whatever you intend to do here, yeah, whatever targets, and there is scope for for a lot of import substitution under the right conditions. The message that comes through from this report is hasten slowly that a 20% reduction in the short term is simply not possible, that we need to focus on the whole value chain, not just single out certain aspects of it, because there are indeed some costs for, for the downstream sectors, that particularly the kind of things we worry about in the broader framework of our macroeconomic policy are still obstacles when you seek to implement something like a localization policy, whether it's ESCOM or other policies on un uncertainties. So I think the important point to remember, our imports are someone else's exports. Our exports are someone else's imports. So whatever boundaries you set that you would like to reach with a localization policy must not get to the point where you invite any kind of retaliation or mm. fall foul of the World Trade Organization. But subject to that, I think these reality tests are the kind that that department ought to engage in with the private sector to see 
how it can be phased in. I would simply conclude that saying that this department, this ministry of trade and industry and competition should perhaps change its name symbolically and call itself the, the department for trade and industry and competition. And that might set the right tone for even getting our localization policy right. Yeah, well, right now it sounds like the Ministry of Tariffs and potentially communism with the, with the, the kind of micro-interventions that the Minister is uh, proposing here. Nazmira, is it clear that government understands the challenges involved for business in localization, in overcoming some of these ob obstacles and the potential here for raising input prices and the impacts that that can have in the broader economy? That there's some understanding, but it's not as widespread as we want. So I think there is some um, lack of awareness on the fact that an import tariff, when implemented, will quickly show up in consumer prices on day one, or if it's input, will feed through the system in a fairly quick period without any real immediate benefits on production. And therefore, the solution is to remove the obstacles that Raymond's been talking about. And that bit is, when, is, is, is a different problem for me in government. I, I think Minister Patel is very well aware of the other obstacles. I think his problem is, is that largely government doesn't have the capacity to alleviate those concerns. So either there mm. are capacity issues or there's ideological issues ah. that prevent those obstacles being removed. And that uh, resides particularly when it comes to energy in the Minister of uh, Minerals and Energy and Minister Gwede Mantash this week standing up in front of Parliament during the budget vote speech and saying, look, I've got 10,000 people who reckon we shouldn't raise this, uh, the scheduled two self-gen cap from 10 megawatts to 50 megawatts. I mean, I don't know where those 10,000 people sit. Maybe the, the coal trackers that we see snaking around in Pumalanga. But if government doesn't have the capacity to do it, the private sector does. And the fact is government ideas logically uh, and Warwick maybe you can just comment on this just simply doesn't want to unblock some of those huge obstacles and barriers to to potential growth isn't it time we see some form of cabinet reshuffle I think it certainly would be would be helpful that uh, the the areas in which um, certain skills can be moved uh, to, to to other portfolios uh, to better effect I think um, I uh, realize, of course, and, and, and I think other folks should realize that the cabinet we had um, is a largely unshuffled cabinet. It was very much a compromise cabinet uh, as Ramaphosa built and consolidated uh, his power base within the ANC. Uh, I th certainly don't think we want to see uh, the kind of staff rotation under Ramaphosa that we saw under Zuma. I mean, that kind of wheel spinning is, is not constructive. It doesn't uh, build sentiment. So I think we certainly need a, a thoughtful restructuring coming through and not necessarily a vindictive one. Um, I share your concerns around Minister Mantashi. I certainly do believe, however, he's a person with uh, talent that can be applied elsewhere. Uh, and uh, perhaps my hope is that he might um, uh, go somewhere like uh, Home Affairs or um, one of the law and order portfolios. I think he's, uh, he's got the kind of personality that, that could work wonders in, in, in both of those areas. 
but quite clearly uh, not uh, really fit for purpose not if you look at the, the energy portfolio and some of those curious decisions that, that have cropped up over the last while, you know, along with the car power ships uh, and the decision to pursue oil and gas in the same week that we've got the IEA saying, right, that's it, no new oil and gas projects if we're to achieve our net carbon zero targets by 2050. A very symbolic uh, announcement that by an international energy uh, organization that has for a long time been a supporter of uh, traditional fossil fuels as a, as a bridge, no longer. Uh, Raymond, I just want to move on to the other big issue this week around uh, trade industry and competition, Minister Patel, and that is around pay gap. Uh, transparency. And I think this strikes a, a chord for different reasons uh, in business perhaps than it does uh, in labor. I certainly think there is a disconnect between the way we incentivize CEOs and management teams versus the value that they're creating. And you can manipulate earnings if you just based uh, your remuneration on EBIT uh, and other total return numbers rather than linking long-term performance to economic value add and going back to Joel Stern. I think the issue for for Minister Patel and for Labour is just purely the quantum of the gap between the bottom paid and the top paid. And I don't mind paying a, a CEO over the top if he's going to be the next Whitey Besson and create the sort of value and jobs uh, that he did at ShopRite. How do you read this issue? Well, I think, Michael, what's important here is the key issue here is transparency. And we know that you know, there's the saying, light is the best policeman. And obviously, apart from, from the JSE, uh, those companies which are listed who already show what is the remuneration of their CEO, etc. And sometimes they are challenged at shareholders' meetings. I think what's important here is that you need more transparency about what's going on. It, I don't think there's any control implied in the amendments to set a target or whatever it may be. It's that you want the debate to be better informed than it is at the moment. And those companies that are not complying with, in fact, the guidelines that were laid down by the King Four report, which laid down what should be the single remuneration metric informed by four inputs. So already work has been done and there are companies who are really seeking to be more transparent. So I think we've got to see it in, in that context that there has been work done, there are companies that are doing this kind of thing, and if we're going to make it mandatory, let's also get this right. Let's ensure mm -hmm. that it's the best thing we can do in South African circumstances. It is done elsewhere. So the important point is to ensure that it's the necessary transparency, which may also help to uh, also promote understanding about mm -hmm what what are the market realities on one hand and what is unacceptable in South African circumstances on the other. That's the future debate once you have all the facts on the table. And I think that is where we ought to be, that this transparency will lead to a more informed debate mm. about the income gap mm. and the remuneration of CEOs, what is justified, what is not justified, what are the, to come back to our earlier discussion, what are the reality tests that you must apply in this sphere as much as you apply in other spheres of policy yeah. if we are now going to legislate for it? We mm. must get it right mm. and we must get the criteria right. Uh, I think there's one area that, that generates a heck of a lot more heat than light and that, that is the area of uh, share options. 
um, particularly when they exercise profitably, because it tends to, of course, widen the gap. Uh, even though, uh, of course, that's a reward for, for, for doing your job properly. I think it's one thing to, to record the price at which or the cost at which share options are awarded. But I really think that when, when you've had sort of multiple years of success, the share price has risen, that it, ten, it tends, tends to confuse the picture quite a lot. And I think that's, that, that's an area in particular which, which needs to come right. I mean, it generated a lot more noise. Mm. Um, which didn't add any value surrounding the likes, for example, of the package that uh, Whitey Basson received. Yeah. Now, Zmira, where, where do you stand on this, uh, you know, in, in terms of transparency and, and getting the, the conversation going and, and getting the incentives properly aligned here between uh, providers of risk capital, managers and stewards of these firms and labor? Michael, I agree with Raymond's initial statement, which is I don't mind paying um, managers when they perform exceptionally. However, I think very often CEOs are paid large amounts of money for mediocre performance. Mm. And I don't think boards do a good enough job at measuring that. I think also what happens is CEOs get paid a lot of money when it's completely beyond their control. So the platinum price has gone up. Or the economy is doing really well. And I think there needs to be a better attempt to separate out those issues. Yeah, yeah. Because it's very difficult to turn around and say to labor, we can't do wage increases or we're doing negative real wage increases to control costs or cutting jobs. When on the other side, you have very generous packages being provided to CEOs. There needs to be some consistency in how we think about that. Mm. So I think that that's the first thing for me is just we want to reward the people who perform, but in order to do that, we need to do a much better job at differentiating between strong performers and mediocre performers. Yeah, and uh, and what is skill and what is just a bit of market timing and uh, good fortune at the end of the day as well. That's where we're going to have to leave it uh, in this week's uh, weekly review with uh, Raymond Parsons, professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, joined by Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, and our special guest this week, Nazmira Muller, Head of SA Investments at 91.